From the studios of EWTN, this is Open Line. Today's Open Line is recorded, so no calls, please. If you'd like to send us an email for a future show, the address is openline at EWTN.com. It is a very special mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Monday on this uh, Memorial Day weekend. Thanks so much for tuning in. Uh, we won't be taking your phone calls today, but if you would like to be part of a future mailbag edition of Open Line Monday, all you have to do is send us an email to openline at EWTN.com. That's openline at EWTN.com. And um, put Monday or Father John in the uh, subject line, and we'll get it to the appropriate folder. I'm Jack Williams, Michael McCall, producing the program. And our host, as he is every Monday, Father John Trujillo. How are you? I'm doing well, thank you. I've got an email here from Gary, and he wants to know, apart from the sacraments, what other ways can venial sins be forgiven? Well, any of the sacramentals uh, also remit uh, venial sins. So if you use holy water, um, you know, you kiss a crucifix, um, you go to the, uh, visit the Blessed Sacrament, all these things also remit venial sin, in addition to uh, receiving one of the sacraments. Um, ben would like to know, who is the beloved disciple? <laughs> That's a good one. <laughs> uh, St. John, the evangelist, not St. John the Baptist, who was his cousin, but St. John the evangelist is known as the beloved disciple because he himself identifies that uh, in his gospel, uh, the beloved disciple. And he's also um, sometimes called St. John the divine, not because he is divine or that he has divine nature like Jesus but because he has a very uh, lofty theological uh, beginning of his gospel. You know, it's interesting because there's a, there's a group, uh, an evangelical group uh, called the Thorn. I don't know if you're familiar with them. <laughs> no, I know some people who are a thorn. <laughs> <laughs> but they, uh, they do a Broadway uh, production, and they only do it during the Lenten season. Um, is it the Lenten season or the Advent season? Must be the Advent season. They do it um, where it's 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 a Broadway musical uh, that is you know a, as good a quality as any production mm. that you'd find out there. And they'll travel around to to ten or fifteen cities uh, every year uh, just during that short uh, season, and they'll put on their kind of Broadway rendition, so to speak, of of the salvation history, basically. And it's told from the perspective of John as if he were telling the story from exile on Patmos. Mm. And he often, there's, there are little comedic interludes that often revolve around him being the beloved disciple. And uh, <laughs> 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 he often, uh, he often <laughs> makes light of that. Um, Brian would like to know, can you explain the words in the creed, the resurrection of the life? I'm not familiar with that. Yeah, because uh, that's not in the creed. I should read these before I read them on air. <laughs> or, or I should have a... Because uh, res- resurrection of the body. Yeah, go, go, go ahead. Mr. <laughs> Mr. Producer Michael McCall, defend yourself. I think it's the resurrection and the life. Oh. Ah. Resurrection and the life. Is that in the creed? Okay. That's not in the creed. That's in the gospel. <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> and would you like to try again? Sorry, everyone. <laughs> Let's go on to Brandy, shall we? Okay. How can I speak to my friends about Sola Scriptura? Well, the best way is to ask them, where is that in the scripture? Nowhere in sacred scripture, nowhere in the Bible does it say the phrase sola scriptura in Latin or only scripture, scripture alone. Um, it's not in there. So for someone to say that the, you must only take scripture as the sole authority, they're using it not based on scripture. Now, it does say that uh, scripture is worthy and valuable and uh, necessary, but it never uses that term sola, which is Latin for only, in the same way it doesn't say that faith alone, uh, sola fide, uh, is going to save you. So as Catholic Christians, and certainly the Eastern Orthodox Christians are on the same uh, page with us with this, a divine revelation that comes from God uh, comes to us in two ways, one through sacred scripture, the Bible, but also through sacred tradition, because the sacred scriptures were entrusted to the church. The church decided what books got in there and what books should not be in there. The church is given the authority to uh, authentically interpret that. So if this were true, then there would be in the Bible that phrase, sola scriptura, scripture alone, uh, or Bible alone, but it's not in there. So that's the first thing I would say to anyone that, that uses that claim, scripture alone. And then you have to ask, well then, if it's not in Scripture, uh, obviously in the very beginning when the manuscripts were written by the sacred author, there are no punctuation uh, marks. There was no capitalizations. There was no chapter and verse. For the first almost thousand years of Christianity, no chapter and verse. And yet today, you see everywhere these sporting events, John 3.16. Well, if you were showing that at the time of, of, of the apostles, they think 3.16 means 3 in the afternoon, 16 minutes afterwards. A, again, a very special mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Monday. Andy wants to know if Catholics really believe in the same God as Muslims. That's a, good, that's a very good question. Um, I would say that a good portion of, of um, Muslims do believe uh, in uh, one God. They believe certainly that they are um, descendants of of Abraham uh, through Ishmael and recent popes from you know John the 23rd JP2 um, Pope Benedict and Pope Francis have certainly made overtures to them and it's even in um, Vatican documents that those Muslims who do um, believe that Allah uh, you know is the same as what we call God, you know, we have common uh, ground there. But there are some uh, Muslims who do not ascribe to that. They certainly believe in God, they believe in Allah, but that they maintain that's a completely separate uh, belief than what uh, Jews believe and what Christians believe. Obviously, as Christians, we believe there's three persons in one God. Um, the, the Jewish people believe in, in just there's one God, uh, whether you call him Yahweh or Adonai or Elohim. Uh, so I would guess it would depend on which a branch of Islam that you would also, because you have Sunni and Shiite. Francis wants to know if praying for souls in purgatory helps them. It does, absolutely. Um, we know this because this is a t solemn teaching of, of our faith. Um, we've always had the great practice of having masses offered for the dead. Um, you know, if you look in any parish bulletin, you'll typically see on one page 
uh, the list of masses for the week, and then next to the time, uh, the name of the person for whom the mass is being offered. So we offer masses for the dead, and we want people to pray for the dead, not just on the anniversary of, of their particular death date or their birthday or whatever, um, certainly when you go to the cemetery, certainly on All Souls Day, but every day you and I should say a prayer, especially you know for our close loved ones. I say a prayer every day for my mom and dad and my two brothers and sister and grandparents, um, classmates of mine who have passed away. Uh, now, we don't know to what extent our prayers are helpful, but we do know that they are of, of some assistance. And we go back to the Book of Maccabees, the Old Testament, that's what they did. They prayed for those brave soldiers who died for the, for their uh, Hebrew faith. Brad would like to know if a confession is still valid if a priest rushes you or misspeaks <laughs> the words of absolution. Um, well, yes, if you go into the confessional in good faith and you confess your sins, uh, if the priest rushes you, he should not be doing that. Um, it's still valid. It's still licit. It's probably it may be a little rude or impolite on his part. Uh, I know, though, as a priest, especially during Lent and especially, you know, during Holy Week or just before Holy Week, when you've got uh, 40 or 50 or more people waiting in line, some people just talk a little too slow. And you got to <laughs> speed up a little bit because people need, you know, people want to get in there. They want to get their sins off their chest. So I can understand why some, and some people are just by nature, very loquacious. They want to talk about everything. You say, this is like the ER, okay? You know, you go to the hospital at the ER, tell them where, you, where it hurts, where it's bleeding. Uh, you're in the confessional and there's a big line. Tell your sins and none of the other stuff. Um, if the priest misspeaks, he must at least say, uh, I absolve you of your sins in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The rest of the formula is necessary for lyseity, but in terms of validity, at least he must say those those particular words. Once again, it's a very special mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Monday. If you'd like to be part of a future mailbag program, simply send us an email. The email address is openline at EWTN.com. That's openline, all one word, at EWTN.com. And put something like Monday or Father John in the subject line, and we'll get it to the appropriate location. Again, it's a very special Memorial Day mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Monday with Father John Tregilio. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Today's Open Line is recorded, so no calls, please. If you'd like to send us an email for a future show, the address is openline at EWTN.com. Nice item at EWTN's religious catalog, a St. Rita statue. This beautiful statue of St. Rita shows her in a black Augustinian habit holding a cross and a gash on her forehead. She is the patron of several things including parenthood, marriage difficulties, impossible causes, sterility, abuse victims, widows, loneliness, the sick, wounds, and bodily ills. At 8 inches high, St. Rita can fit in most places in your home, adding a bit of encouragement to all those who gaze upon her. 
Each statue is made of a resin mix in Colombia and individually hand-painted by talented women who are either widows, single mothers, or those who are sole providers for their families. It's available now at EWTNRC.com, where they're offering free standard shipping on online orders of $75 or more. Simply use the code FREE at checkout. That's standard shipping in the continental U.S. only. Again, a special mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Monday. Uh, Taylor writes in, my aunt wanted me to have her ashes after she passed, so I have an urn in my home. I am Catholic. She was not. What should I do with her ashes? Uh, You should bury them um, because that shows great respect for the fact that we believe that in the resurrection of the dead, even if, uh, you know, your loved one did not, uh, we believe in the resurrection of the dead so that her body will be reconstituted uh, and glorified uh, when it's reunited with its soul, with the soul. So I encourage you to, you know, uh, bury, intact, not not scatter. Um, some cemeteries uh, allow you to just place the urn in the ground on top of an existing grave so you don't necessarily have to buy a, a new plot. Um, you can also ask your your diocese if they, because most dioceses have either a Catholic cemetery of its own or a Catholic section, and they can certainly help you uh, find a place if it's a, a financial issue uh, where you can have probably done uh, maybe for nothing in terms of cost. But um, I would not want you to keep the ashes on the mantelpiece or anywhere in the home. Uh, you do need to bury intact either uh, in the ground or at sea. Um, you know, my dad was in the Navy. My mother <laughs> insisted that we weren't going to dump him in Lake Erie, but, uh, you do have to keep it in the, in the container in, in the, uh, urn. Um, another way you can be part of, uh, an EWTN open line Monday mailbag show is you can call our listener comment line, which is our normal phone number, 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986 after 4 p.m. Central Time. Uh, and um, you can leave your comments and questions on our listener comment line call. Let's take a listen to one of those right now. Can a baby be baptized in the Catholic Church if the parents are not married? That's my question. Thank you. Okay, that's a very common question, um, unfortunately. Um, Yes, the baby can be baptized in the Catholic Church by a priest or deacon, even if mom and dad are not uh, married, only if there is reasonable hope that the child will be raised in the Catholic faith. So if mom and dad are not going to bring the kid to church and make sure he or she receives the sacraments and catechesis and, and, and everything, if grandma or grandpa or the godparents can assure, give the uh, priest or deacon reasonable hope that that's going to take place, then they can. Um, we do not want to say to the parents, well, we're going to hold you hostage. The only way we're going to baptize your baby is if if you get married, because Rome has already de- determined that that would be um, using force on the sacrament of matrimony, which then would make it invalid. We certainly can encourage, and I've done that myself, saying to mom and dad, you know, this would be great if you know you can get your marriage um, uh, recognized by the church, so that you can receive the sacraments and then set a good example for your son or daughter. But if they're not practicing and they have no desire uh, to be married in the eyes of God, we must have somebody who's going to step up to the plate officially. Michael writes in, I see in some churches that 
some say the Apostles' Creed, and some say the Nicene Creed. What's the difference between them, and are they interchangeable? Uh, yes, the, there is um, the option of using the Apostles' Creed, especially when you have a significant portion of the congregation as children, as um, uh, people who are being catechized. I know at certain masses where you've got uh, uh, the RCIA um, class there, uh, you can use the Apostles' Creed. But normally speaking, it should be the Nicene, uh, actually it's called the Nicene Constantinopolitan Creed that we do on Sunday. Um, but the Apostles' Creed is allowed under those uh, restrictions. Jim would like to know what's the importance of celebrating saints' feast days. The feast day is typically, but not exclusively, the day the person went to heaven, um, the day they died, and so that's why we we honor them on that on that day. Some of the saints we just don't know uh, when they pass away, or they too many people pass away on the same day. <laughs> you know that happens. Uh, you know you got thousands and thousands of people, and only three hundred sixty-five days in the year. So if it's not the day of their death the day of their entrance to heaven. It could be the day the church just, you know, uh, indiscriminately chose. Or in the case like, say, St. Thomas Aquinas, uh, the day his body was moved, um, St. Dominic, uh, St. Catherine of Siena, uh, these are all saints that had their, the day changed when the calendar was revised after the Second Vatican Council. So, uh, but typically the saints' feast day is what we would call their heavenly birthday, and that's what we're honoring, but also seeking their particular uh, intercession. Again, it's a very special mailbag edition on this Memorial Day of EWTN's Open Line Monday. Let's take a listen to another one of our listener comment line calls. Hey, my name is Paul. I'm from Baton Rouge, Louisiana. I just got a quick question. I always wonder what I'm trying to get baptized, and I just hear a lot of commotion going around conversations about whose name to get baptized in or whose name not to get baptized in. I'm just trying to figure out that whole situation about getting baptized. Thank you. Okay. Well, I'm glad you asked that because, uh, you know, people, you know, have similar questions, and I'm glad that you uh, brought it up. Normally speaking, um, we use the person's name that they were born with um, that's on their birth certificate. Um, in the olden days, uh, it was necessary that you have a, what we call a Christian name, a name of a saint or someone in the scripture, a good person in the scripture. Okay, you don't want to use like Cain or, um, you know, uh, somebody nasty in there, Judas. But uh, a saint's name, uh, someone of, of good repute. Uh, but now, uh, with the 1983 Code of Canon Law and the revision of the sacraments after the Second Vatican Council, you can just use a person's uh, legal name. Um, in that case, then we urge them for their uh, middle name, also sometimes called their Christian name, because if somebody was uh, had a name that was not a particular saint for their first name, that was the practice of having the second or middle name which would be the Christian name if their first one was was uh, more secular. So it's not something that is absolutely uh, required, um, the, the, even the second name, the middle name. But it's a good opportunity because most people don't didn't pick their first name. They weren't, you know, uh, they were a baby when it was assigned to them. So their second name, uh, just as in the case of confirmation, you get to choose a name. Uh, and, you know, in this case, since you're going to be baptized, you know, it gives you an opportunity to look, do some research, um, 
you know, uh, Father Briganti and I, we did a, a book, Saints for Dummies. Uh, we went through all the different saints and gave a little explanation of their lives. You might find one that you say, yeah, that's someone I would like to emulate. You could choose that name uh, for your baptismal name or your uh, middle name. Um, what about the form of the sacrament? Okay, uh, the form of the sacrament must be, I baptize you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Anything else would be invalid. So you cannot say, we baptize you, as some priests and deacons did, and it was de declared null and void. Uh, you can't say, I baptize you in the name of the Creator, Redeemer, Sanctifier. It must be, I baptize you, or I baptize, you know, Fred, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Um, that's the, And then using water, pouring water over the person's head, what we call infusion, or immersion where you completely uh, immerse them in water. Um, that's what we call the form. Um, the matter is using the water. The, the form are the words that are spoken. And obviously the intention is to do what the church uh, um, wants to do. Uh, Diane would like to know, does sickness come from God as a punishment, or does it come from the devil? Well, sickness comes because of sin, in this sense that Adam and Eve, had they not sinned, uh, they would have stayed in the Garden of Paradise, and all human beings would have enjoyed that uh, wonderful preternatural gift of never experiencing pain or suffering. But because of original sin, uh, death and disease and suffering come into the equation. Um, it's not that God's doing this to um, punish us per se. You know, you were bad today, so he's going to send you a headache. Uh, it's just that in general, there are consequences um, like what you know, it's like somebody who you know drinks too much. The the next day they're going to have a headache. They're going to have uh, you know a hangover because they overindulge the day before, or for, someone eats too much and they got a bellyache. Okay, it's not God doing that. It's nature responding to someone. Uh, we have people getting diseases. Some of them, you know, because they have um, you know improper, imprudent lifestyle, or sometimes it's just no fault of their own. I mean, my brother had muscular dystrophy. That had nothing to do with him or my, my family, um, but that disease was something that, you know, it, it's uh, an opportunity uh, to unite one's suffering with Jesus on the cross, so it can be salvific. But we want to avoid this idea that all pain and suffering is a direct personal punishment by God, because then it, it seems, you know, that we're at that lower level of, of uh, education that, you know, God's training us like Pavlov's uh, dogs. No, that's not what happens. Perry writes in, in his earthly lifetime, when did Jesus know that he was the Son of God? Well, that's a good question. And the key here is when you say, when did he know the he, the person of Jesus, he's a divine person. Uh, he's a divine person with two natures, human nature and divine nature. In his human nature, he's got a human intellect, and a human will, and his divine nature. He's got a divine intellect and a divine will. Um, but it's one person, so one center of consciousness. So Jesus always knew he was the Son of God because there's only one eye. When he looked in the mirror, if he looked at his reflection in the water, the, the eye, who he is, is divine, and he always knew that. Now, his human intellect had limitations because it's created. It, it's it, a human intellect is not designed uh, to be infinite. So it cannot know everything uh, in his human intellect, but in his personhood, 
he knew everything because he's uh, the son of God. He's the second person of the Trinity. Once again, a very special mailbag edition on this Memorial Day of EWTN's Open Line Monday. If you would like to be part of a future mailbag edition, just send us an email. The email address is openline at EWTN.com. That's openline, all one word, at EWTN.com. It's EWTN's Open Line Monday with Father John Tregilio. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Today's Open Line is recorded, so no calls, please. If you'd like to send us an email for a future show, the address is openline at EWTN.com. Happy Memorial Day to each and every one of you. It's a mailbag edition of Open Line Monday with Father John Tregilio. Father Kim would like to know, why does Jesus tell the disciples in the Gospel of Mark that he speaks in parables to others but will explain their meaning to the disciples. Okay, well, it's not because Jesus wants to be mysterious uh, in a spooky sense. Uh, it's that he wants people to come to the apostles, come to the disciples, and be assured because they were his close friends. Uh, he was their teacher. They were his students, so to speak. And the purpose of the parables is, one, so his enemies... Um, cannot distort uh, what, what his actual message is. And also because it's a sign of faith. Um, he wants us to believe uh, not something that knowledge is when, you know, you teach someone two plus two equals four. That's something that they know. Um, faith is something I take on the word of someone else. So when Jesus gives a parable and then the apostles and then later on the, the church and her magisterium interprets that for us, we take that on faith. And uh, it, it strengthens our faith. If it was all just meant for me individually, then he would have, there would have been no parables. And the point of the parables is that it, it can apply not just 2,000 years ago, but even to this day. Let's take a listen to another one of our listener comment line calls. This is Jim in Pittsburgh calling. I have a friend who's a Baptist. He's a good friend. And he believes that Mary had other children besides Jesus and I said that is not possible. It doesn't even make sense. And I would nobody could ever tell me that that's the truth. But he claims that it's in the Bible and insists that he's right. And of course, the Baptists know everything. So I would like to have an answer that I can give him, because to me that is the most absurd thing. Who could claim that they came out of the same womb as God Himself? Thank you, Jim at Pittsburgh. Okay, Jim, that's that's an excellent question. Um, first of all, it, it never says Mary had other children. What Scripture, the Bible does tell us, is that it uses, it's in the English translation, um, they say to Jesus, your brothers, your brothers and sisters are here, or uh, St. James refers himself as a brother of the Lord. Um, but at no time does it say Mary had other children. The only direct child that we have the Scriptures affirming is that Jesus was her son. Secondly, the word that's used in the English, okay, for, refer to these um, people who are um, allegedly Jesus' brothers, um, it comes from the Greek word, which uh, the, the, the uh, Gospels were written in Greek first. The word is adelphos, which is uh, singular, 
uh, Adelphoi, which is plural. Uh, it can be translated as brother in the sense that, you know, you share the same parents, like my brother Mark and I have the same mom and dad. But also the Greek Adelphos can refer to any male relative. It can refer to um, a cousin. It can refer to an uncle. And we know this because in the book of Genesis, especially when you go to the King James Version of the Bible, the uh, quintessence of, of the Protestant uh, scriptures, King James Version of the Bible in Genesis refers to uh, Abraham and it says, and his brother Lot. Well, Lot is not his uh, brother in the sense that he shared the same parents because earlier in Genesis we're told that Abram, his brother is Haran, and Haran's son is Lot. We, we refer to them in our common uh, understanding that Abraham was the uncle of Lot. Lot was his nephew. But uh, G- Genesis in the, in the King James says your brother Lot because when you look at the, the Septuagint, the Greek version of the Old Testament, it says Adelphos. So if Lot can be called, quote, his brother, meaning that was his male uh, relative, his nephew, then all the more you could say with Jesus when it says your Adelphoi, your male uh, relatives are here, it makes perfect sense then. It's, I can use the term relative and say my brother Mark's my relative, my cousin Randy is my relative. Uh, it's interchangeable. In ancient Greek, uh, Adelphos in the, in the Hebrew, Ach, uh, was more inclusive than, than our restricted term that we use today. Again, a very special mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Monday. We're not taking any phone calls today. Heidi writes in, Can you explain what it meant when Jesus said, In order to follow me, you must hate your mother, brother, etc.? Yes, this is a good follow because, again, we go back to the ancient Hebrew um, language. It did not have superlatives like we have today. So we would say you must love God the most. Um, love your mom and dad, but love God more. Um, in ancient Hebrew, you did that by using what we would call a hyperbole. So when Jesus says you must hate your mother and father, he doesn't literally mean hate animosity. Um, it's in the same way when he says if your right arm or your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. If your right eye causes sin, pluck it out. Uh, it's using hyperbole to make a point. It's something very common at the time of Jesus. It's something that rabbis w- would do. We, we do it ourselves. We say, oh, I'm so hungry, I could eat a horse. Well, most people, unless you're in Milan, Italy, where they actually do serve <laughs> mortadelle that way, uh, it's, a, it's a figure of speech uh, that, that our Lord uses. So when he says, hate your brother, mother and father, he's just saying that God must come even before your, your parents. Let's take a listen to another one of our listener comment line calls. Jason in Lincoln, Nebraska. I was wondering why God doesn't just destroy Satan. That's my question. Thank you. Okay, well, the God created Lucifer as an angel, and uh, Lucifer went bad. And he rebelled against the Lord's authority and dominion. He became the devil. Lucifer became Satan then, and one-third of the angels followed him. Um, God does not destroy uh, Satan because he made him uh, with an immortal soul, like you and I. Uh, we have an immortal soul. And uh, God does not uncreate what he creates, especially when it's in his image and likeness. And so in terms of the spirituality of uh, the spirit of the soul, 
uh, there's angelic nature, there's a human nature. Now, purely um, animalistic, uh, materialistic, vegetative uh, things, yes, they, they can be destroyed, but um, when you talk about immortality, uh, the angelic soul, the uh, human soul, uh, they are designed to be something that lives forever. So God does not uncreate what he created in that regard because it's so special. At the same time, he cast the devil into hell. And, you know, the devil is going to be suffering for all eternity. Um, so uh, it's it's a really severe punishment. So many times people say, well, wouldn't it have been better if uh, he just unmade him? Um, you know, the Lord uh, has greater wisdom than we do. Again, a special mailbag edition of Open Line Monday. Rick writes in, where in Scripture does it support Christ's quote-unquote body, blood, soul, and divinity in the Eucharist? Well, it's not phrased precisely that way as it was enunciated at the Council of Trent, and we see it in the Catechism. But we certainly see in John 6, you know, my my flesh is real food, my blood is real drink. Uh, at the Last Supper, uh, we see in the in the three synoptic Gospels, this is my body, this is my blood. So body, blood, soul, and divinity um, is extrapolated from those those passages, and the church has the authority to do that because he says in the in the Gospel of Luke, he who hears you hears me. Um, the church was set up, okay, officially by Christ. Whatever you declare bound on earth is bound in heaven. So the authority that's given to the church. She exercises, and so that pronouncement that in the Holy Eucharist, body, blood, soul, and divinity is based on that reality. And any philosophical, logical conclusions that flow from that uh, are also applicable. Uh, let's take a listen to another one of our listener comment line calls. The question is about cremation. If the Catholics before were not supposed to be cremated, and now it seems like an awful lot of them are, if that's okay to be doing that. And my second question is, if you're in the KC's, a guy, if he can be in, if he's been divorced. Okay. Um, I presume she means by the Knights of Columbus, uh, KC. Um, let's, uh, <coughs> let's, that's one easier to handle. Um, if someone's divorced, they're still considered... Um, you know, part of the church, they were able to receive the sacrament. It's only when someone's divorced and remarried uh, outside the church without the, an annulment and uh, having a convalidation uh, in those cases. So, because I was, I'm a fourth degree Knight of Columbus. I was a chaplain uh, as a Knight of Columbus. And I can tell you that um, that's on the form. Are you uh, a practicing Catholic? And that would mean that, it's, you know, your marriage is recognized in the church. If not, then they should not be. Uh, admitted into the Knights of Columbus. And what was the first question she asked? I don't recall. Here, we can pre we'll play it again for you, Father. Okay. <laughs> the question is about cremation. If oh, yes. <laughs> the Catholics before were not supposed to be cremated, and now it seems like an awful lot of them are, if that's okay to be doing that. Okay, um... Yes, it was. She's absolutely right. And before it was forbidden uh, to be cremated, and that's because uh, in the pagan culture in which the church was uh, established, you know, in Roman times, 
they cremated their dead and then they, you know, dispersed the ashes. So to reaffirm the, the Christian teaching of the resurrection of the body, the church forbade uh, cremation. And she did so for um, uh, almost 2,000 years. Um, but then we realized, too, that uh, because of, of um, economic reasons, health reasons, you know, there's parts of the world, you know, we're not just talking about the recent pandemic, but, you know, during the time of the um, bubonic plague, the Black Death, um, other instances where it just was not possible to um, bury so many people who died, like, in time of war, um, you know, like, for instance, you know, when they liberated some of the death camps, you know, it was just un unmanageable. So the cremation itself today, as long as, here's a caveat, as long as the person does not deny the resurrection, and that's why we don't want people scattering the ashes. We don't want people putting them in little amulets to wear around their neck or some kind of jewelry. We don't want them dispersing a teaspoon among all the, the relatives. Yes, you can be cremated, but you need to have bury those cremains with respect and you still should have a funeral mass um the best thing would to be is if someone is going to be cremated that they have a, a viewing with the body they have a mass with the body then have the cremation but i know some people if you can't afford that the church says yes you can uh be cremated uh but as long as you're not denying and in the early church and for centuries that was a concern that if we did have cremation all over the place that people would uh and i and i hate to say it but i think we're, we're coming around to see that that so too many people do not uh reaffirm their belief in the resurrection so we may have to go back to uh, not having a cremation but right now uh, it's allowed as long as you don't use it to deny a, a tenet of the faith David writes in, in the Chaplet of Divine Mercy, why do we say, I offer you the body and blood, soul and divinity of your dearly beloved Son, our Lord Jesus Christ? How can we offer God to himself? Okay, we do that because we are a priestly people. We, have, we share the common priesthood through our baptism. And that's why at the Mass, uh, at the offertory, the priest says, pray, brethren, that my sacrifice and yours may be acceptable to God the Almighty Father. My sacrifice as the priest is the, is the bread and the wine. Yours, as members of the congregation, the baptized faithful, is that you're putting yourself with that sacrifice. So we offer up, in the sense, because Jesus was one of us in his human nature, we offer it up uh, in that sense. We're uniting ourselves with that sacrifice. Um, it's not that we are making the offering uh, on, our, on our own behalf, we're doing that because Jesus did it for us, and we're connecting to that. If you'd like to be part of a future mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Monday, you can send us an email. The email address is openline at EWTN.com. That's openline, all one word, at EWTN.com. Also, you can leave a message, a question for us on our listener comment line. And that's just our regular phone number, 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986 after 4 p.m. Central Time. And you can leave your question on our listener comment line. Let's listen to one of those calls now. Hi, my name is Michelle. I'm calling from Winter Harbor, Illinois. The one question I have is, what is the general consensus on female altar service? I am... Part of a Novus Ordo church, 
having been a confirmed Catholic for about a year and a half now. And I was asked to become a female altar server, but I wanted to know what what take on that. Thank you and God bless. Okay, did she, was I, I, I female altar server? Female altar. Okay, um, that is up to the discretion of the, each individual bishop, and most bishops have left that up to the individual pastor. Some diocese, it's you know diocesan policy that uh, any female um, can be a, an altar server um, because it's not considered uh, something that is exclusive uh, for the males, but. Uh, I know some diocese, the bishop says no, because that has been, uh, I, I became a, a priest, I got my, I believe my calling to the priesthood to enter the seminary because I was an altar boy. Um, when Father uh, Briganti had, uh, was pastor in New Jersey, um, he had both altar boys and altar girls because that was the diocesan policy, but the boys wore cassock and surplus, the girls wore uh, some kind of uh, robe, uh, again to distinguish because that is a reservoir of priestly vocations, but if it's allowed, then you know it's like if people if in your parish or diocese, they allow you to receive communion uh, in the hand or on the tongue. Those are your options. If it's not an option, then you don't have it. That's obviously. Um, I just find uh, again, you know, it's this is this should not be a political thing where well we need to establish equality. Therefore. Um, when I was growing up, the girls did not feel inferior because they could not be an altar server. Uh, we had other uh, things for them to do uh, in the parish, and uh, uh, I just think you know when it becomes a political thing, that's the the problem. Um, you know, even in the Byzantine and Orthodox uh, tradition, uh, they only have male uh, servers. Um, so it's only when people use it as a divisive thing that that it becomes problematic but um if in her area where if it's allowed um and it's done properly uh, with reverence you know i'd say you know do do what you're allowed to do uh paul writes it jesus tells the pharisees that david ate the showbread when he and his men were hungry so justifying his apostles picking grain on the sabbath how could we reconcile jesus coming to fulfill the law, but also to defy it? Well, the law he's fulfilling is the law of God, um, not the uh, man-made laws. There were over 600-some uh, laws that were, were established under the time of Moses and afterwards uh, by the priests and the rabbis. The law of God that Jesus was referring to to fulfill it was the Ten Commandments, the divine law the natural law, the human laws, which were uh, given through Moses, like the dietary laws, uh, those are something, obviously, which can be suspended and uh, eliminated, which they were when, remember, when St. Peter had that uh, vision of the food coming from out of the sky and he was told to eat, and he said, no, I'm forbidden to eat that, those kinds of food. And, you know, the voice said, well, it's not what you take from outside that makes a man evil, it's what's on the inside. So, the dietary laws that were part of the um, Judaism uh, were not considered part of when, when Jesus says, I've come not to abolish law, but to fulfill it. He's fulfilling the law of God, the divine law, uh, not the human ones. Uh, we do this program Monday through Friday at 3 p.m. Eastern time. Be sure to check out Open Line Tuesday tomorrow with Father Wade Menezes. We'll be talking faith 
family, and fellowship. That's Open Line Tuesday tomorrow afternoon, 3 p.m. Eastern time right here on EWTN Radio. Rick writes in, a Baptist pastor told me that we Catholics believe that we are saved by the sacraments, not by Christ. How can I respond? <laughs> well, who gave us the sacraments? <laughs> Jesus did. <laughs> I mean, it's, um, it's if somebody throws you a, 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 a life buoy, okay, the buoy saves you, but who threw it at you, all right? Uh, Jesus established the sacraments, especially the sacrament of baptism. He says, go baptize all nations in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Uh, unless one is baptized, um, uh, born again of water and the Spirit, he cannot have eternal life. So it's Christ. He didn't have to do it this way, but that's how he chose to do it. He chose to use the sacraments, and they are not just something that are optional or incidental. They're necessary for salvation, and he gave them to us. So we do believe that we're saved by Christ. He's providing the means for it. Now, if he wanted to do it a different way, he could have. Uh, if somebody fell off the boat, you could have dived in after them, or you could throw them, you know, uh, the life uh, pres uh, preserver there. Dustin writes in, should we make reparation after a sin is forgiven? If it's a matter of justice, let's say you took money from someone and uh, you're able to repay that, uh, you, you are never obligated to disclose your identity. Uh, if you took money and you weren't able to replace because you don't have it anymore, um, you obviously you know are, are unable to make restitution. But if you can, or if it's the case where someone's good name is in jeopardy because you told a horrible lie, you have to make some attempt... Again, you don't have to reveal your yourself, but uh, somehow make an effort uh, to restore the injustice that's been done. Uh, that's something that a priest confessor should recommend to you. But again, it's not something that's absolutely necessary because you know it may not be able to be done, and the person may not be uh, willing to divulge their identity that they were the the one who did that. Got an email here from Tom, and he says, Father Trujillo, it is my understanding now that there are four conditions to be satisfied before one can receive the benefits of an indulgence. Number one, a person seeking an indulgence must be baptized. Number two, not excommunicated. Number three, in a state of grace when performing the work of the indulgence. And number four, and that a person needs to have the sincere intention of gaining the indulgence before doing the particular work associated with us, with it. I must say that I have not always called to mind the fourth requirement, but pray each day out of devotion, not necessarily doing so quid pro quo. I tell myself that our Lord does not question my intent, but I would hate to think that hundreds of rosaries are lacking effect. Call okay. this Catholic paranoia. I just do not see why point four is even stated as a condition. Well, this is the way you can satisfy that one, is first thing in the morning when you wake up, you make the intention, Lord, if I, w I want to receive any indulgences that are available to me today, um, that would satisfy that fourth requirement. Um, it's preferred, obviously, that if you make it explicitly uh, part of your intention when you're doing it, um, but like the person said, uh, there may be times in the day where you, you forgot. Um, but see, indulgences are something that is um, a unique aspect of, of our faith. It's a special 
privilege that God gives us that we can participate in this. And I wouldn't want somebody to just think, well, I could just willy-nilly, you know, just stumble upon that. Uh, I have to have some intentionality there. Uh, just like, for instance, with Divine Mercy Sunday, uh, we want people to want the intention to make the uh, the effort. And uh, so certainly the way it's set up now, you know, you, you do the performed work or prayer. Uh, you go to confession 20 days before or after. You say the prayers for the Holy Father and uh, receive Holy Communion. Um, the work itself is part of that. And the intentionality, you know, it should be something concrete. We don't want to make it too esoteric, but the same token, again, if I, like I, I was told this by Father Levis of Happy Memory, you can make an intention every day that uh, whatever uh, indulgences are available to you, you, you intend, you want to receive those. But then you have to fulfill all the other things as well. They cannot just you know, um, in, in sort of like ambiguously apply more than once. They have to be done individually. Kim writes in, why don't all Catholic churches follow the tradition of receiving the body and blood with the host and wine? I understand the issue with same cup and that there may be possible germs transmitted, but does it have to be one cup or can it be just a tray of small shot type glasses? The scriptures read body and blood. A prayer is said to include both body and blood, but it feels like the church has created something that isn't following tradition. Since all the churches, Catholic tradition is followed for other ways. Why is the Eucharist not followed in every church? Okay. Well, I had this very issue uh, when I was a pastor. Um, because people were saying, you know, one re one day I remember uh, we didn't have enough wine to consecrate, so we just had the host, and somebody said, I got ripped off, I got half a communion. I said, you you cannot get half a communion. Uh, it's body, blood, soul, and divinity, and say, uh, the Council of Trent defined uh, that, uh, that in one species are both. So in the sacred host is both the body and blood. Uh, it was Martin Luther who insists that you have the, the people have both, but churches always maintain one, you receive both. Can't separate body from blood because that's death. Jesus is risen from the dead. Father, would you leave us with a blessing? Certainly. Benedictus vos omnipotens Deus, Pater, et Filius, et Spiritus Sanctus. Amen. Amen. On, beho on behalf of our host, Father John Tregilio, our producer, Michael McCall, I'm Jack Williams. Thanks so much for tuning in. Enjoy the rest of your Memorial Day. We'll see you tomorrow. God bless.